Good morning. It is really great to be here. Let me turn on my speaker. There we go. Welcome to See Me Church. Our mission is to love and to live like Jesus. You know, last week was an amazing time to celebrate our third birthday and was really encouraged by everyone who participated and made that service so great. I especially want to thank the sharers and the great job that they did in their sharing and being open with their hearts. Some of you may know there was a bit of an oversight on my part. Uh, if anyone uh, got up here and gave a testimony, they weren't necessarily thinking that that would be recorded and then put on social media. They were comfortable sharing it in this room. Um, but I know that there were a number of people videoing or filming. And so I have a request on behalf of the sharers that uh, if you filmed anything or record anything and you happen to have posted online, please remove it. It's, it, you know, what's done is done. They're not upset, but it did, you know, have uh, some of those things they didn't necessarily want out there for public consumption on the internet. So just by chance, if anybody did anything like that, please make sure you remove it as soon as possible. And uh, let's just be grateful that they were so open and shared from their hearts. So uh, two weeks ago, we were in our series, Jesus Worth Following, and we talked about moments that matter. And we saw Jesus at the peak of his notoriety, of his fame, and how that was the moment that he entered into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry as humble, as a humble king. And, uh, and, and today, I want to talk about starting over. So I have uh, some fun here. Top 10 reasons God created Eve. Number 10. God was worried that Adam would get lost in the garden and refused to ask for directions. Nine, God knew one day Adam would lose the remote and need someone to find it and give it to him. Eight, God knew Adam would never buy himself a new fig leaf when his old one wore out. Seven, God knew Adam would never be able to make a doctor, dentist, or haircut appointment on his own. Six, God knew Adam would never remember which night was trash night. Five. God knew that Adam would never be able to handle the pain and discomfort of childbearing. That is true. Four. As the keeper of the garden, Adam would never remember where he left his tools. Three. Apparently, Adam needed someone to blame. Let that one sink in for a minute. Okay. Number two, it is not good for man to be alone. And the number one reason that God created Eve. When he finished creating Adam, he stepped back and said, I can do better. <laughs> you know, sometimes in the Bible, God starts over. And that's what today is about. It's about starting over. I want to be honest, this is a very difficult message for me to preach. In a good way, I have been touched in my heart. God, already it's crying. I have been touched in my heart by the message today. For two weeks, I have been breaking into tears, thinking about the message today. 
So hopefully I got it out of the way and I can preach it and not distract you with my tears. But what I want to ask you to do for the next few minutes here is to really open up your hearts and let God's word speak to you because it spoke to me. And when we do that, uh, times of refreshing, times of starting over, new beginnings can occur. And so I'm going to ask us to take a little bit of time today, be willing to go deep. We're going to do a deep dive into God's word. This isn't going to be light. It isn't going to be superficial. It really is going to be a deep study of God's Word. And I'm going to do my best to be brief, but I have to do it justice. Because it is an incredibly powerful moment in history. Not just in the narrative of Jesus' life, but in history. So we're going to start here in Mark chapter 12, chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. And I'm going to pray before we get started. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together in such a beautiful day, such a beautiful time to be alive. It's amazing to be a part of Simi Church and experience worship like we experience in this tiny little room in a tiny little corner of Simi Valley with such incredible musicians, such incredible words and worshipful songs. It's an incredible blessing to be here and to worship you, to experience joy in your house. I pray that that is what we experience when we leave today and that we're committed to start anew in our relationship with you and our relationship with others. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now we are going to study an interesting passage of scripture taken from Mark. And it is actually very difficult. Even theologians have a hard time with the next several passages, the next several, the next part of the narrative. This is just the beginning and it's already difficult for people. Why would Jesus curse a tree for having no fruit? By the way, we're probably somewhere in the the March. The season for figs was not for another couple of months, which makes it all the more confusing that he would kill an innocent fig tree for not having fruit out of season. This is the only miracle in the Gospels of destruction where Jesus destroyed something. That really conflicts with our desire and our understand, our desire of G, uh, the desire we have in our heart to think of Jesus in a certain way. It conflicts with our understanding of Him. So what in the world is going on? We have to remember that Mark is both bio, it's a biography, but it's also a narrative, it's also a sermon. Mark took Peter's memories, his reflections on the life of Jesus, and he put them in an order in such a way to make points and to tell stories that make points. And so every section we read, even if something is odd, as Jesus cursing a fig tree for not having fruit out of season, it was important. And I hope to dive deep here, help you understand the the point of this, the meaning of this, the depths of it, And then hopefully we'll come out the other side new, with a new perspective and a new understanding of what 
is happening in the last days of Jesus' life. So context is everything. So what is the context? Well, we know that for three years, Jesus and his disciples zigzagged all over the land of Palestine. That's the map there. And he preached repentance and practiced grace everywhere he went. At different times, he would do miracles. His, 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 they were so amazing that people knew there was something special about him. At different times, he would teach lessons with such authority that people got disturbed and bothered. And rumors began to float out there. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the chosen one? Could he be the fulfillment of all these prophecies that the Jewish people held so dear in their ancient writings of the Son of God coming and freeing the Israelite people from, from their tyranny and their Roman oppressors or whatever the case may be? Those rumors started to surface. They started to float. It got so intense that Jesus had to hide oftentimes to stay out of the public eye because of the crowds. But no more. Two weeks ago, we learned that it was Palm Sunday, what we celebrate Palm Sunday today. Jesus woke up. He was in Bethany. You can see on our map here. Bethany is less than two miles away from the city of Jerusalem, the temple. He was in the town of Bethany, staying at Lazarus's house. And oh, by the way, when he got there, he raised Lazarus back to life which then spread like wildfire throughout the pilgrims who were traveling into Jerusalem on that road through Bethany or Bethpage and into the city, that Jesus had raised somebody from the dead, confirming in many minds that he was something special, that he very well may have been the Messiah. And at this point, his fame and his notoriety is in the stratosphere. Now, Jesus never exactly said he wasn't the Messiah, but at times he never exactly said he was. And oftentimes when people said he was the Messiah, he told them to keep it quiet, but no more. The time was now. He was at the peak of his notoriety and he was going public. And so he got up on Sunday morning and he started walking from Bethany through Bethpage into the temple and he sent his disciples ahead of him to start letting people know he was coming. Now it was Passover, and tens of thousands of people were streaming into the city of Jerusalem. So rumor, the, the, the news spread like wildfire all over the trail into Jerusalem and all throughout the city. And by the time Jesus got to Bethpage, there were tens of thousands of people there greeting him, call, calling him the Messiah, singing Hosanna, and saying to Jesus, save us! And he gets on a colt, a donkey, a young donkey, in purposeful fulfillment of a prophecy that the king, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. And he rode into the city. It was public now. It was out in the open. He was taking on his position, his title, his role. And so for the 800 yards from Bethpage into the city of Jerusalem, there was a line of people, thousands, tens of thousands, cheering, laying down palm branches and things and, and clothes, giving him a, a rolling out the red carpet. By the, the time the day ended, he had just enough time to take a tour of the temple. Sun went down, day's over. He left, went back to Bethany, to Lazarus and his two sisters' house and spent the night. So now, the next day, it's Monday morning. He gets up, and he's on his way back in to Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, in the vicinity of Bethphage, 
He sees this fig tree. It's leafed, but there's no fruit, and he curses it. Now, he curses it, not publicly like he did yesterday in front of tens of thousands of people, but he curses it just enough for the disciples to hear him curse it. And so Mark and Peter and the rest of the disciples, they made note, what was that about? So Bethpage, it was a city of priests. It was built for the purpose of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, were the ruling leaders of the nation of Israel. Their origins go all the way back to Moses, thousands of years. Seventy elders, and their job was to oversee the affairs of the Israelite people. And they remained in existence pretty much continuously from the time of Moses all the way through the time of Jesus and even for a couple hundred years after Jesus before it was finally disbanded. It was called the Sanhedrin. It was presided by the high priest and many of the ruling leaders of the people. And Bethpage was the city of the Sanhedrin. They had an office there, a court. And it was there at Bethpage that they would announce the beginning and the end of things. Now, in the old days, at Bethpage and other cities, other Jewish cities, there was always a, a small city just outside the main city where business was conducted, religious and secular. But in the time of the Romans, they were taking care of all the business and the government stuff. So Bethpage was primarily there for ritual purposes. It was, it was really, they were there to deal with religious matters of the Jewish people. And so trials and court cases and things would be heard there. It was built just outside the city, even though it was considered part of the city. It was like Washington, D.C. It was a district. It wasn't a city. It wasn't a state. What was it? It was a district. I don't know. And it was there because it was just outside of the city where there was no light pollution or dust, where they could see the sky. And the reason for that was that's how they determined the seasons. They didn't have their phone that just did it automatically. And so they would determine the seasons, and then from that, they would determine the start or the end of the religious calendar, of the sacred Jewish calendar. So like when Passover was coming, they would see the, the signs in the sky, oh, it's coming into fall or into spring, Passover's coming, and they would light a signal fire, just like in Lord of the Rings, and then that would get lit all over the area, and that way all the Jewish communities throughout Palestine knew, oh, Passover's starting. And that would be the signal for them to start pilgrimaging to the city. And so it was a place where beginning and ends were determined. It is not a coincidence that Jesus mounted the cult at Bethpage. It was purposeful. He was announcing the beginning of something new. Fanfare, parade, the whole nine yards. The next day, though, here he is again near the city, and he curses a fig tree. I think we're going to see in just a minute that he was announcing privately the end of something. You know, becoming a believer requires a new beginning. For all of us that have become Christians, it was a new beginning. But you know, it was also the end of something else. It was the end of our old former way of living and being and thinking, and it was the start of something new. If you're visiting, if you hear this online, 
in our, uh, you know, on our, on our podcast, or if you're a member today, one thing that is true of, of a religious life, of a true spiritual life, is that there's lots of beginnings and ends. We start over a lot. We end and we, we start and we grow and we change and we start over. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, is it not written, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests, the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. It'd be nice if our days just ended and we all got to go home, you know, but at the, at the end of the day, he returned to Bethany. I got to imagine that as they walk back into the city on Monday morning and the disciples, they just leave Bethpage, they see him curse a fig tree. I got to imagine that the disciples were probably thinking, what is happening? Yesterday was awesome. Tens of thousands of people were cheering. You were riding a donkey. You were fulfilling the messianic prophecies. It's great. And a day later, Jesus' whole tone, his whole mood, everything has changed. He killed a tree. What is happening? He goes into the temple and he just loses it in the temple. He begins chasing out merchants, money changers, the suppliers, the caravans that were going using the temple as a pass-through. And he begins chasing them out and calling down curses. And he quotes two passages of Scripture. Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. I want you to look at this picture. This is not real. This is an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like in the time of Jesus, the temple. You see, there's a large courtyard around the main structure called the Court of the Gentiles. There's like a fence there with inscriptions on it. And that fence was, was where if you were not a true-blooded Jew, you couldn't go past that fence. Jewish people, men and women, with pedigrees, with clear lines of descent, they could pass through, and then the women could go into the court of the women where they would worship. And then the men could go even further, all the way up to the front of the court of women where those columns are. That was called the Hall of the Israelites, and that was where they could worship. They would offer their sacrifices, be ministered to by the priests, etc. The merchants, the money changers, the caravans carrying supplies were set up in the court of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus chased them out. This is where he got so indignant and so upset that he, he threw over the tables and forcefully removed those people. Now, he was not condemning capitalism. Let's be clear. He was also not upset about donut sales, church bake sales, 
coffee houses that churches sponsor or sell before church. That's not the problem here. The problem is that the court of the Gentiles was their church. And on permission of the Sanhedrin and the high priest, money changers, merchants, and caravans were allowed to pass through their worship service. The place set aside for them to worship God. Imagine if the the, the hotel staff was just passing through every every few minutes and somebody was over there hawking their new line of jewelry and somebody was over here doing Arbonne and with all the other, Amway and all the other stuff. And, and we're trying to preach. I'm trying to preach and you're trying to pray. And there's all this distraction and all this noise. What's even worse is that on order, on order of the high priest, by permission of the high priest Annas himself, the money changers were allowed to, ex- to charge excessive fees. You were coming to worship at the temple. You had Roman money. Roman money was not accepted at the temple. So you had to exchange your money, just like when you go to a foreign country and there's an exchange in the airport, and you never do it at the airport because it's too expensive. Well, they did it there. And they were allowed to charge excessive fees. Pilgrims making a journey of hundreds of miles in some well, of tens of miles, sometimes maybe a hundred in some cases, were coming three, four days, a week or so on the road, and then they were charged exorbitant fees to transfer their money from Roman money into Jewish money so they could go and give their alms and their tithes at the temple. All to the benefit of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. The people selling the sacrificial animals. You know, it would be hard to leave your, ha- your house in Capernaum, travel 70, 80 miles all the way down to Jerusalem with your goat to sacrifice it. Not everybody had those means. Not everybody could do that. And so goats were made available. Nothing wrong with that. But excessive rates in the middle of service? Imagine during our worship when the band is up here and they're singing and you're moved. I, I was moved. I had to stand up. And the guy next to me, he's got his wallet out going, hey, I'll give you five for that ten. And That's what they turned church into. I want you to listen. And this is what broke my heart. I want you to listen to Isaiah. Because when Jesus preached Isaiah, he didn't quote him. It wasn't a soundbite. He recited the whole passage. You know, we watch the news and you get the soundbite. And that becomes the story. But then you dig deeper, which is hard to do because apparently we don't do that anymore in this country in our news. And you hear the whole speech and you go, hey, that ain't half bad. But the soundbite, you know, you either like it or you don't. In Jewish, in Jesus' day, It was very common for people to memorize Scripture, entire books. They did not have rectangular pieces of plastic that they stared at 24 hours a day. And so they they devoted themselves to memorization to a level that we rarely see in our day. And so when Jesus quotes a passage, it's a famous passage. Instantly, people knew exactly the meaning of of the passage. And I want you to listen to Isaiah. 
If I can get someone to bring me some water to help me from tearing up so much, sorry. But I want you to do me this favor. I want you to think about coming to worship at the temple. You're a Gentile, a foreigner, or you're a eunuch. We're going to see, thank you, Isaiah mentioned eunuchs in a minute. Or you're a eunuch. A eunuch, even if you were Jewish, couldn't pass past that gate, that fence, because you couldn't be with defect to enter into the temple. So even if you were a pedigree Jew, you couldn't go in if you had a defect. And then there were exiles there. Exiles were Jews who couldn't prove their lineage. Back centuries before, the Jewish people had been conquered by Babylon, and they scattered them all over the empire, and they lost their lineage. And so some Jews that could prove their lineage, they made their way back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the city and the temple, and they were considered pedigree Jews. And then there was this whole category of other Jews called exiles. They couldn't go past the fence. And then there were just others, moved by God to come. Listen to the quote in its entirety that Jesus preaches as he's whipping and clearing these tables and these merchants and these travelers and these money changers out of the church of the Gentiles. Listen to his language. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who come tens, hundreds of miles to come and worship, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. These were people who could not have children of their own, not by choice. It was forced on them. In that day, as it is today, one of the most important things anyone could do is have a child. It was, it was culturally the, the sign of God's favor and blessing, and that had been removed from these people. Even some of them were Israelites, and they could not go beyond the court and into the temple proper. And, 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 and so that was the only place they could worship. And God is telling them something. He's saying, listen, I know you've suffered. I know you've been hurt. I know things have been taken from you that shouldn't have been taken from you, but I'm going to give you something better. In his temple. Verse 6, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy. In my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. These were the unchurched, the non-Jews, the foreigners. They were given a place at God's temple in his holy house. And that place was meant to be filled with joy and prayer. Something 
drew them there. Why are you here today? God put something on your heart and brought you here today for a reason. We have visitors that come in. They don't even know half the reason why they're here. But they're drawn. Something brings them to this house. It's meant to be a place of joy, of prayer. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. The lost people of Israel, the exiles, the people who couldn't trace their lineage, they, they, they couldn't prove their, inher- their inheritance, they were forced to worship in the court of the Gentiles. And yet God wanted them there and he wanted to bring them in all for the same reason. The eunuchs, the foreigners, the exiles, he wanted them all there for the same reason. To find joy in the house of the Lord. It hit me so deeply that these people were drawn by God to come. There was something in their heart and what they got for all their trouble and hard their hardship was disrespect, was being taken advantage of. They were forced to worship in a street where caravans were passing by, money changers were conducting business, people were buying and selling animals, and they were there to do what was on their heart to do. And their joy was being taken. You can see why Jesus was so angry. That is not how the house of the Lord should be experienced by people. So he says, Jeremiah 7, it gets even more intense. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. While you were doing these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in, the place I give to you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites and the people of Ephraim. He's quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived somewhere around 680-ish BC. Jeremiah was the prophet that watched Judah, the, the, the last nation of Israel, fall to the Babylonians and the temple that was built there destroyed, never to be found again. What he's telling them is this. Jeremiah was preaching to those people at that time, and he was telling them, hey, you guys are off base. Your religion has become empty. It has become fraudulent. What do you think you're doing? You better get your act together. And you know what? Forget it. Enough is enough. I'm going to wipe this place out. He was prophesying the coming of the Babylonians in, in 586 B.C. to destroy the temple. And he quotes an earlier time in Jewish history. When the temple used to be at a town called Shiloh, we're going deep. When the Israelites came out of Egypt at the Exodus, 
they wandered in the desert for 40 years and they built a tabernacle, a mobile worship service. We haven't started calling Carlos's Prius a tabernacle, but we're getting close. Because <laughs> our whole church is in his car every Sunday morning. But they had this mobile worship, house of worship. And after 40 years, God finally said, okay, now's the time. Go into the promised land. And by the way, don't forget about me. So they go into the promised land. They put the tabernacle at a city called Shiloh. That was Jerusalem before Jerusalem. That's where all the Israelites went, went where they all went to worship, Passover, etc., do their sacrifices. The priests were there, all that. But because the Israelites got comfortable in Canaan, and they started sinning it up and acting like everybody else and neglecting their faith and the priesthood got corrupt, God destroyed the tabernacle. And so several hundred years later, when Jeremiah is accusing the Israelites of the same exact thing, he says, hey, remember when I destroyed Shiloh? Well, now I'm going to destroy, destroy Jerusalem, the permanent temple that David built that brought everybody back to God. But again, after a few generations, there we go again, wandering off, forgetting about other people, being selfish, falling into sin, doing all our stupid stuff that we do. And God said, enough is enough. I've warned you, I'm wiping out the temple. And when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the whole thing. Everything was taken. The people were carried away. Now Jesus is quoting Jeremiah and he's saying God's going to do it again. He started over at Shiloh and he started over at Jerusalem and he's going to start over again because you don't get it. God's house, his place of worship is to be a house of prayer where troubled people we're distant people. We're hurting people. We're faithful, God-fearing people who have it on their heart can come and worship in joy. And the Sanhedrin, the high priests were abusing them. They turned their church into a flea market, into a bypass for travelers into a place where they could graft money from people. And Jesus said, enough is enough. I am done with you. Don't think for a minute that people did not know what he meant. They knew their Bible. They knew exactly what he was doing. You know, I came out to church many years ago. This is where I went when I just let this sink into my heart. And I was young, but I was troubled. I was looking, I was searching, I was frustrated. I had tried religion in my life, and it was always seeming to be just a series of failures. And I finally got met by someone at this church. I came out. It was intimidating at first, but eventually I was welcomed in. I was shown love. I was cared for. The, the, the church became my friends, and my friends became members of the church, and it was glorious. I slept like a baby. I enjoyed my life. Going to church was fun. But somewhere, it seems like it changed. It seems like it got hard. Rules became more important than people. 
deciding who was in and who was out became more important than people who were coming because they were drawn by something. I remember going to a wedding. I was there 15 minutes early and I got rebuked for not being 30 minutes early. Just an example of joy being taken right out of me. Just sucking the life out of me. I was faithful. I, I plodded along. I was a good soldier. But the worst thing is then I started to repeat those behaviors. I started treating people the same way. Deciding who was in and who was out and who I needed to protect myself from and who, who I could fellowship with and all that stuff that came with it. Even to this day, I struggle. It's easy to judge. Believe me, it would have been easy to judge me when I first showed up. I was not this awesome. <laughs> that is a total joke for the people listening online. But I was loved and I was accepted and that's what mattered. And I loved going to church. I loved it. Then it became hard, and it became business, and it became rules, and there was rights and wrongs, and there was things I had to adhere by, and my joy was slowly leaking out of my body. Can you relate? Yes. They were stealing it. Good people, well-intentioned. I know them. I'm still friends with them. But, but it was our environment. It just got there. I don't know why. Apparently, it happens to religious people. It happened to Israel repeatedly, and it happens to us. We get out of touch. And we, we begin to not care about the other person's experience. We care about our experience. And so I became guilty of robbing people's joy. Even to this day, I owe Carlos Garcia a huge apology and probably others. But when we started Simi Church, he's our guy, brought everything. And instead of just seeing that he was doing it out of love, I was getting frustrated with the things that he would forget or things that wouldn't get put together right. And I would, I would just grind him. I would just ride on him and, and you know, pr pressure him and pressure him. And I could see the joy leaking out of his eyes, but I couldn't get out of my own stinking way. And thank God for Mayan, who literally removed me from this room one day and said, stop it. Now, I wasn't yelling, I wasn't cursing, but I was just putting pressure on him. And it was stealing his joy. And Carlos, I'm sorry. Forgive me. But I think, thank you, I, I think that every one of us is guilty of something similar. We judge people. I can't be friends with them. I don't fit in over here. We have all these rules and all these things that people have to fulfill before we can be accept, we can accept them. What are we doing if we're not stealing the joy from people's walk with God. So two weeks ago, I read this and I broke into tears. I hope you're thinking the same things I am. I hope it's hitting you like it hit me. 
Because then I heard Jesus say, enough is enough. It's one thing when mine does it. It's another thing when Jesus tells you enough is enough. And he told me enough is enough. And I hope he's telling you enough is enough. This church is the house of God. And if it's known for anything on Sunday morning, it needs to be known as a place of joy and a place of prayer where the farthest person away, the, the foreigner, the, the, jet, the, uh, the, the eunuch, you know, the, the exiled Jew, the person who fell away from the Lord can come and experience joy. Something brought them here to begin with. Who are we? To steal that from them. And so I want to start over. I hope you want to start over. I hope you'll follow me. I'm starting over. Away with the old. And in with the new. My commitment, I know I'm not perfect, but my commitment is I come here on Sunday and I just try to be nice to everybody. I just want you to enjoy this moment, if nothing else in your day. I want you to know that there is a God and that God loves you and God has a place for you in his kingdom and he's invited you into his house and I should never be a bad host. I should never turn you away, make you feel outside or different. We've got a lot of kids in our fellowship that have grown up in this church and they haven't become Christians yet. How do we treat them? Do they feel like this is their home, the thing that they grew up in? Or do they feel constantly like they're on the outs? I know many children who are adults now and I hear it in their voice. They don't feel like they're allowed in. Because they're just not right yet. They're not ready yet. They have to feel the distance. What? Is that what I, what Jesus said? Was that what he quoted from Isaiah? Make them feel different? This is their home too. They're a lot like those exiles. Are you willing to start new today? Are you willing to follow me? If not, I ask and I pray, please go home, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, listen to the voice of God, hear what he's telling you, what he's saying to us, and what he condemned the Jewish people for in Jesus' day. The lack of love and care that they put out for other people who were different and the lack of letting them experience the joy of God and having prayer regardless of where they stand. Please, join me. Verse 20. So the day ends, another busy day for Jesus. One day he's in on a parade, the next day he's clearing out the temple. Night comes, he goes home, back to Bethany, to Lazarus' house with his two sisters. In the morning they get up and they come back in. It's Tuesday now. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Jesus doesn't reply to the fig tree. He just tells Peter, 
have faith in God. So this brings us back to where we started. Why did he kill the fig tree? Well, now some people will say, and this may be true, that figs at this time of year, even though they didn't have fruit, they actually had little buds on them. They were like little mini figs, and they were edible. And so maybe he was actually hungry and got mad that there was no little fruit because the, the, the tree was in leaf, so it had something going on. And, and some uh, agricultural people, I've, I researched this, say they said, well, some figs come early and some come late and all that. But that's not the point. The issue was not whether the thing actually had fruit or not or whether it was supposed to have fruit or whatever because the fig tree wasn't what he was mad at. What was he mad at? Anyone, take a guess. What was he mad at? What was he fed up with? The nation of Israel. You see, the fig tree was, was, was a symbol of the Israelite nation. And the fact of the matter is they had failed again in their purpose. Their purpose to roll out the red carpet to all nations to come into the house of the Lord, experience joy, and pray to God. They had failed. And Jesus cursed that fig tree as a, as a it was like a, a Easter, what do they call those, Easter eggs? It was an Easter egg. He put it out there for the disciples to see it, and then he went into the city, cleared the temple, and the next day they saw it, and they went, oh... I get it now. He was showing us what he was about to do. The fig tree represented failed Israel. And then he went in there and he called Israel failed. Now here we come back and there it is dead. It failed. What's interesting is it's also not a coincidence that this happened at Bethany. Because remember, Bethany was where the Sanhedrin announced the beginning and the end of things. When Jesus mounted the colt, he began a new covenant with people. It was the announcing. It was the start of it. And when he cursed the fig tree the following day, it was the end of the old covenant, the old system. The new has come. The old is gone. In about 70 years, the temple itself would be completely destroyed by the Roman Empire. The Roman army marched on Jerusalem in 70 AD. They destroyed the whole temple worse than the Babylonians did. And then they issued a law that Jews were not allowed back into the city of Jerusalem for years. That's how thoroughly God wiped the temple off the planet and the whole temple system because he was done with it because they had failed in their primary purpose to love others. So instead of all that, Jesus assumes they figured it out. And he goes on to say, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you also, may forgive you your sins. Okay, so now we have another complicated passage. We're deep diving. I'm almost done, though. But there's another complicated passage. And if we just read this without knowing the context of everything we just talked about, 
We look at that and we go, well, I'm going to pray that I win the lottery. And I feel that I have faith. Why don't I win the lottery? And a lot of us do that. We pray. I've done it. We pray, God, give me this. God, give me that. I have faith. I have faith. And it doesn't happen. And we get discouraged because what's wrong? Something's wrong. The Bible is... No, you have to know the context. This passage is confusing if you just take it out of the whole story. But if you leave it in the story and you follow the narrative, you'll understand what he's saying. I want you to look at this picture. So this is a map somebody built. Like a, like a, on a table. And it shows the aerial view of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was like San Francisco. It was built on a bunch of hills. And so, number one is the Mount of Olives. That's where Bethphage was. Number two was the Temple Mount. That was called Mount Moriah. Number three was where the city of Jerusalem existed on what they called Mount Zion. Now, all of that together was often called Mount Zion. Like, when people thought of Jerusalem, they didn't think of all the individual hills. They just called it Jerusalem or God's city or Mount Zion. They looked at it as one big hill. Now, when you stand at number one, the Mount of Olives, and you look towards Jerusalem, you can see the temple and the city behind it. You're almost on an overlook. Is it possible that when Jesus said, have faith in God, if you say to this mountain, he was looking at the city? That in a very real way, he was telling them that if you would have faith in God and you would throw that whole old thing away, that tired, old, broken, failed, used up faith, if you throw it away, God will do incredible things in your life. So Jesus isn't telling us, oh, you want whatever you want, just have faith and you get it. No. He's telling us that when it's time to start over, you have to start over. You have to throw the old out and bring in the new. And when you do that, when you live with that kind of faith, then you can stand before God and ask. It doesn't mean you're going to get everything. It just means that you're going to do incredible things, even better things, something far and beyond what the old system ever could have done. Believe me, had I not let go of my old way when I came out to church for the first time, I would never have experienced the things I experienced today. And the same is true with you. If you had stayed in your old way of life, in your former way of living, it would have been very different than what you experience today. Good, bad, and ugly included. Right. And he was telling those disciples, I just ended that whole thing. Throw it in the ocean. And let's go somewhere different. Let's go forward in faith. And I love how he ends it. Because this whole process of going and letting go and going and letting go, or, 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 or you know, of, of new beginnings and, and letting go of the old new beginning, it's something that happens all through our lives. And every time we do it, we, we take another step of faith. We take another 
leap into the unknown. And God blesses that. He rewards us. But at the end there, I have to back up, sorry. Look what he says. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. So he ends where he began talking about prayer and forgiveness. Prayer and love. God's new people, those who throw that mountain into the sea, they would be defined not by rules and rituals and a heartless religion, but they would be defined by their faith and by their love for others. Amen. It is my prayer that we leave here starting new. It is my prayer that we leave here holding nothing against each other. We walk out of here committed to loving one another and truly experiencing what God intends for us to experience, joy in his house of prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening. I'm going to close out in a word of prayer and you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so very much for the love that you've given to every one of us and the opportunity to start again, no matter how badly we failed, we always can start over. That's an incredible gift. Let us not take it for granted. God, I pray that we leave here and that Simi Church just explodes with love. That we embrace the words of Jesus as he quoted Isaiah, as he spoke from your heart that his desire for us is to love the people around us, to roll out the red carpet and let their experience of you be full of joy and full of prayer. Pray these things to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.